Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Command Space. My name is Mike Hurley and I am joined today by Mr. Brian Brushwood. Hey, Brian. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, no. Thank you for being here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I am honored to be in your presence here in the floating space of Cyberland. <laughs> so, Brian, why don't you tell people uh, what you like to be known for? Man, that's getting to be a difficult one. It used to be like seven years ago. It was an easy answer. I'm like, I tour across the nation doing a crazy magic show. But now I have to explain to people about Scam School, a show about how to score free drinks at the bar that I host, and uh, NSFW, a comedy show every Tuesday night. And uh, I guess I'm, I, I don't know, I'm an internet curious character. How about that? That sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'll get business cards printed up instantly. So we're going to talk about some of that stuff. Um, I like that internet, internet curious characters that we, is that sure. We, that's as of now, I just coined it and, and I trademarked it. So don't try to steal it. I'll try not to. I can't promise anything. I don't think I'm as curious as you though. <laughs> yeah. You like to go around and just explain things. <laughs> I'm the internet explaining character. There you go. We could team up and fight crime together. <laughs> the ICC and the IEC. That's what we'll be. It's like some sort of official thing. Well, that's catchy. The ICC. Stop, criminal. It's the ICC and the IEC. <laughs> stop you. He's already gone. <laughs> so the magic, right? That interests me. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. What is your history in magic? I've always loved magic, but never in a million years thought I would actually do it. Certainly not professionally. But when I went to college, I knew nobody. And all of a sudden, I had 20 hours a day where nobody was telling me what to do. And I remember deciding that magic, no matter where I went in life, it would be good to know a few cool tricks. So I bought a book called The Royal Road to Card Magic, written in like the 1920s or 30s, and uh, an abridged sized deck of playing cards. And so I spent a couple of months learning a few slights and before I knew it, I had hooked up with a local magic club. Somebody offered me a pro gig. And throughout all of college, while everyone else had to wait tables and get part-time jobs, I would just do 30-minute magic shows here and there or help out with other magician shows. And it wasn't until two hours after I graduated from college that I was still kind of gigging on the side. It was like I would work all week, but I would really live for Wednesday nights when I would go down to the Electric Lounge and uh, this fantastic uh, blues brand band, the Asylum Street Spankers, would perform. And then I would get on during their break and perform 15 minutes and then pass the hat. And then uh, one month, one month I got a raise at my day job and it terrified me because I realized that uh, once you get paid too much, that's how you end up doing something you hate for the rest of your life. And so as a direct result of that raise, I was like, I got to get this out of my system. And, you know, maybe maybe I will do very well working for the man, but I'm going to spend that whole time wondering what might have been. So I and I didn't want to have to deal with that. So I was like, just give me a year. Let me get this out of my system. But instead, uh, a year later, I asked my wife to quit her job. And a year after that, I was on The Tonight Show. And from then on out, it was touring all over. So what sort of magic do you do? I, I make sure to call it bizarre magic because – Magic still has a very much a child reputation. If you say you do magic shows, the first thing people say are like, oh, my seven-year-old loves magic. But I wanted my show to be kind of the magic show that was a rejection of everything that you think of when you think of magicians and magic. I wanted it to be non-pretentious. I wanted it to be approachable. I wanted the audience to feel like I was on their side, not on my side. Uh, I wanted to amaze people, but I, I didn't want to play that douchebag game of like, and now I'm a wizard because I think a lot of magicians fall into that trap. And so to engage college audiences, which are traditionally some of the most jaded and bitter and least magic liking people out there, 
I knew that you had to play with themes of self-destruction. You had to have danger and suspense to really engage them, but you had to have self-deprecating comedy to get them on your side. So I put together a show that starts off with, you know, fire eating. I break 30-pound bricks over my head. I stick nails in my eyes. I, I read minds, do sleight-of-hand comedy magic. It, it eventually became this monstrosity to where I had to call it bizarre magic because I didn't want – I was tired of people trying to book me for children's birthday parties. So I, as, <laughs> if you say bizarre magic, it, it's like a speed bump. It makes people pause and say like, well, what do you mean bizarre? And then they get a sense of uh, just how weird the show is. Do people know what they're getting into, do you think, when they come to a Brushwood show, if they've never seen you before? Nowadays, yes. I mean, early on, it was it was a problem because, uh, you know, this is what, 12, 13 years ago, when people would still advertise for magic shows at college campuses by, they would go into Microsoft Word, print out some clip art of a bunny rabbit and a hat, and write Magic Show Thursday, and then they'd show up and whatever it was they were expecting, it wasn't me. Uh, and so over the years, you know, that I had enough shows where like eight people showed up and they all didn't expect it to be what they got. And so it became very important to me around 2003 or so to work heavily on branding my image to make it very clear that what they were about to get was highly unconventional. And, uh, and, and also, you know, I, I had a really unique look at the time, you know, this ridiculous, crazy Bart Simpson meets Guile hairstyle. And I wanted, when I would walk out on stage in the early days, whatever they were expecting, it wasn't me. And so they would, people would involuntarily laugh. And so nowadays, you know, the posters beforehand, they all make sure to brand, you know, you get high quality photography so they know exactly what they're in for. You know, I learned a lot about uh, what kind of imagery to use to, to make people not expect a, a, a kiddie magic show. And even when they show up, there's like a 30-minute pre-show, just like when you go to the movie theater. They got slides and puzzles and questions. Only all of them uh, do things like play clips from Scam School or show photos from when I was on The Tonight Show. Or all of these things were designed to engineer an expectation in the audience. It's 30 minutes of basically a way to hypnotize the audience and say, look, you know, this guy you're about to see is not a joke. He's going to do some crazy stuff that's going to be uh, unconventional to say the least. So, sort of a two two pronged sort of a question because you kind of alluded to it when I when I asked you the last one. Um, one sort of how much of your time is taken up by touring now, and when when you go to shows, are people coming to see Brian Brushwood now, or, or are they still you know just attending still, the magic show? Yeah, it's changing, and and I think it's one of those tipping point kind of things. This is the fifth year that we've done scams. Scam school, I guess, our sixth year now. Scam school launched five years ago last month. And we're creeping up on 300 episodes. And uh, in that time, you know, it started from getting 10,000, 20, 30,000 views a month to where now it gets, you know, uh, right around 2 million views a month. So that's not nothing in terms of total exposure out in the world. And uh, two years ago, maybe three years ago, was some of the first times that I would hear from people. They were like, hey, man, I watch you on Scam School. I really like it. And it would be maybe one person out of the entire audience, audience of two to 300 people. Everyone else is there because the posters say some weirdo is going to eat fire and stick nails in his eyes. Uh, but then like three people would be like, oh, my God, it's Brian Brushwood. But that's really turned around this last year. In fact, this last gig I did, uh, we're looking at as many as, you know, 15 percent of the audience knows knows me from Scam School and came because they heard I was on campus. Uh, I, I would like to think it's a turning point, but you know, it's still it's still still the early days, man. The internet's the wild west, and yeah. you don't really have a sense of you know, the days of flipping a switch and throwing someone on Ed Sullivan 
and making them a megastar overnight are, are dead and gone. And instead, it's this slow, perpetual growth where you build a passionate audience underneath you. Now, you can have uh, viral success come out of nowhere, but, but those are you know, obviously extremely few and far between. So how much of your time do you tour now? How much of your year is, is touring with the magic shows and stuff? I would say 10 years ago, uh, or I guess, I don't know, seven years ago, at the height of my college tours, I was doing probably 150 shows a year on the road, uh, 200 to 230 days out of the year, most of the year. Uh, nowadays, I mean, I still travel a lot, but I travel to do shoots. And for a while, I was traveling out to San Francisco to shoot uh, Scam School. But nowadays, nowadays it's a, it's a lot more relaxed. I'm looking at maybe uh, four or five shows a month, which is still, I mean, it's not nothing. You know, you're still looking at uh, 60, 70 shows a year, but, but it's enough that I actually get to see the family and kids at home, which is nice. Yeah, I bet. So let, we, we've spoken about um, Scam School a little bit. It's kind of been in, coming in and out of the conversation because it lends quite heavily to, to the magic because it's sort of some of the stuff that, you know, the, some of the tricks that you've learned and the skills that you built up over time helped you, I'm sure, help create this show. Now, Scam School is a revision-free show and it's been around since 2008. Um, and if anybody doesn't know, I mean, it's been around for such a long time, I'd be surprised if people didn't because, you know, you've kind of been around since the start of, podcasting yeah well i was a little bit late to it i and and my entry was actually born out of a frustration and anger against the way television is run because when i was uh, in my early 30s i sold the idea for a show uh, you know about scams and cons and and the history thereof to court tv at the time and uh, when i started doing it, i was so excited i was like this is it i'm selling my first idea we're gonna make something happen and i was under the impression that because these people worked in television they knew what they were doing. And so even though there would be several times where I felt like they were making really bad decisions, really bad ideas, and I just assumed they were the experts. And I was like, well, sure, yeah, let's make that work, whatever. And it was a very top-down experience. Like even though I was the one who came to them with the idea for the show, they were telling me what, you know, which ones they wanted to do. And they said, oh, well, we skew older, so why don't you comb your hair and mm-hmm. put on this sweater uh, and <laughs> by the time what they got was a very bland, forgettable project. And of course they passed on it. And I was so pissed because I remember like, like I knew these were bad ideas. I knew we shouldn't have done this, but I didn't feel like I had the clout to say, no, I didn't feel like I had the authority. I, I, I made the mistake of thinking that top down was a way that would work. And so I sat down and made a list of, yeah, you know, I was like, man, I want to host TV shows. I want to make stuff happen. And, uh, I was going to make a list of what do I need to have done in order to host a show. And the first item I came up with was, well, if I'm hiring someone, they need to have already hosted a show. And so that paradox pissed me off. And of course, this being the early days of, of YouTube, I just decided, you know, nobody, nobody needs to tell me what you could do. I knew podcasting was growing up and, uh, you know, you could also distribute with uh, Meta Cafe and, and YouTube and blip.tv and even Bright Cove was available to people back then. So I uh, made up a little show called Brian Brushwood on the road. And it was just, I had a busy tour schedule and I had a a charismatic assistant with me on the road and a couple of cameras. So I just recorded a bunch of travel logs, little vignettes of life on the road. We did about 23 of them. And during that year, I learned how to talk to a camera. I learned how to tell stories. I learned how to think in terms of blocking. And I learned the tricks that will make it easier for people to edit properly. And then by the end of that year, I was trying. I was getting kind of wa- worn out on doing Brian Brushwood on the road because it was a lot of work 
for, for virtually no views. I think our most popular uh, video had like eight or maybe 3,000 views on it. And so around this time, I was listening to This Week in Tech because I had been a fan of uh, tech TV. And I listened to, uh, you know, to Leo Laporte talking to David Prager as he's explaining what they're getting ready to launch with Revision 3. And I remember thinking, man, David Prager, is that, is that the same guy that was my producer when I, did, uh, when I went to go do the screensavers? And then he mentioned Martin Sargent. I was like, yeah, I did Martin Scar- Sargent Unscrewed as well. I was like, dude, I know these guys. And so I thought, you know, maybe there's a way that I could take this scam school idea that I've been kicking around and instead of doing it on my own, maybe actually get somebody else to professionally produce it. So I called him up. I wrote up a pitch and sent it over there. And in fact, the tagline of social engineering at the bar and on the street, which is what we use for scam school, uh, that was based to give it kind of a hacker tech angle because at the time, Revision 3 wanted to be more tech focused. And so it was. I was thrilled when they said, yes, they wanted to pilot it. I was thrilled when when we shot the stuff and it came out good and I was thrilled when they said we're going to launch it. And for the next four months, it was like carrying a secret. I knew that we were working on this thing and I wanted to tell the world, but nobody even knew who Revision 3 was. And nobody, it's like, it's weird because I knew, I'm like, guys, this is going to be a big deal. But they're like, sure, great. Tell me about it. Uh, let me know when it, when it happens, whatever it is. And it was, it, it's, again, there's never been this overnight success moment. It's been, this slow grind. And then one day you look up and you're like, oh, I guess this is going pretty well. <laughs> and it has been, right? A long time. Been running it's, since 2008. Yeah, we're creeping up on 300 episodes of wow. Scam School. And it's because of Scam School that other podcasters started taking my calls. I got to you know, go on This Week in Tech a few times and eventually joined uh, you know, the, the Twit Network, both with NSFW, the comedy show, but also Frame Rate, a show about uh, emerging new media and, and the changing face of how we watch what we watch when we want to watch it. And uh, that's with Tom Merritt every Monday night and uh, the Weird Things podcast, a few others. It's one of those things where it's like, if there ever will be an opportunity for me to get in front of uh, you know, a camera again. I want to be prepared to have so much flight time under my belt that anytime, anywhere, I can run my mouth off and try to keep things afloat in front of a camera. It kind of gets addicting, doesn't it? Once you, yeah, once you do gets one a little, show. it gets a little uh, brain scrambling as well. Yeah, that's true. When you forget what show you're introing, which I do a bunch of times. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I could definitely relate. So did, how did Scam School, you know, aside from the other shows and stuff, did it change like, sort of your career and direction in any other ways? Uh, I, weirdly, no. I mean, my day job, and I think this is part of the reason that Scam School worked, is because, because it wasn't television. I was under no illusions that I was going to be quitting my day job, that I was going to be stopping touring, that I was going to suddenly have this other gig that would occupy me full time. And instead, I always treated it like a side gig uh, now, obviously, the time I invest in it has to come from somewhere. And so what I tended to do was I would, I would, whatever time and effort I would invest in marketing and promotion, you know, because when you're self-employed and you've got a little show, you got to get the word out on it. You find yourself buying advertisements and newspapers, doing direct marketing, direct mailings. This is, you know, before the internet ruled the roost, you know, putting together demo videos and all that stuff. My thinking was, okay, that time exists. I'm going to put all of that investment into scam school. And with any luck, if scam school grows, that will fill the void of what I'm no longer doing on my promotion because I will organically build this audience. And so it's, 
and again, it's been a very slow grind. I mean, I remember freaking out when I was able to cross over a thousand followers on Twitter and, uh, but, but it's been very rewarding to where now, uh, there's, you know, you get, you get, you get a decent social following out of the entire experience. Yeah. Which is a, a real nice sort of, uh, a nice thing that comes along with that, you know, with that added exposure. Yeah, well, and again, it's not something that just happens on its own, and it's something – it's it's a garden that you have to continuously tend, and it's an investment. But if you love the interaction, if you love making jokes and, uh, and, and in my case, causing mischief on Twitter and social media, then then the investment is its own reward. And when there comes a time for you to ask something of the people who are following you, then hopefully they'll follow because they, uh, you know, because they feel like they owe you something in response. Yeah, which is nice. And sometimes it's nice when you have a question, um, you know, and people can just answer it. That's always. A oh, question. my God. Yeah. Total lifesavers out there. Um, so, you know, with, with uh, Scam School and NSFW, you know, Scam School against NSFW and, and Screen Time, they're very different sorts of shows, you know, from a production standpoint. I mean, obviously, you've got out in the street, out in bars, interacting with people and, and that sort of stuff. Do you have a preference, you know, for, for the type of show to create or do you like They're very all? different. You know, Scam School is highly produced. It's something that's highly edited after the fact. It's something where we will go back and do second takes and we you'll notice that we try to edit out every um and 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 stammer in there. And in fact, uh, early in the launch of Scam School, I realized that uh, if I was going to build a passionate online following, I needed to give them whoever they are, whoever the people watching are, I needed to give them more than five to 10 minutes once a week in order to get people wound up and excited about me as an online personality. And it was watching folks like Leo Laporte. I'm like, man, that guy, he just, he just has an army at his disposal. Sure. People just can't get enough of him. And it, listening to him, he's so super smooth on the mic. He never stammers or stutters. He's got that, that golden voice. So he's like, how did he do that? And again, it's like I go back to that memory of sitting down, what do you need to do in order to host a show? Number one, you need to have already hosted a show. What do you need to do in order to build an online following and be comfortable on a microphone knowing that thousands of people are watching you? You need to have already done it a billion times. <laughs> so weirdly, even though I had this career of touring live and even though I had this career of, uh, you know, I started scam school, I needed, I knew I needed experience in live hosting a show. And so I didn't, I, in other words, I needed a place to be bad because I firmly believe that you must be bad before you can become good. Being bad is an integral part of becoming good, uh, but I needed a safe place to be bad. So on New Year's Eve, or I'm sorry, New Year's Day 2009, in my new house, we set up like a webcam and a, just a crummy little 320 by 240 window because that's all the computer could handle at the time. And I said, I announced just on Twitter, where I only had, I think, 800 people following me at the time, that I would hang out and I would answer questions about Scam School. And that was the first, that was the beginning of what eventually got called the BB Live Show. So if Brian Brushwood on the Road was the precursor that taught me how the skills in order to do uh, Scam School, then the BB Live Show was the precursor that allowed me to do NSFW and frame rate because it's tough, man. The way you got to juggle, you got to be thinking about how to make a salient point while phrasing appropriately, also while switching live from different things and catching a glimpse at the chat room to figure out what they're shouting at you about. I mean, that is a that is a skill set that you can't just decide to have or study about. It's something that you got to do just by doing. And I love it. And that's another one that's just its own reward. That's the part of the reason that um, 
you know, when when Leo talked to us about doing NSFW, I was like, are you kidding? We we already do this for free every Tuesday night. Sure. Yes. <laughs> we'll be happy to join your network. And let me tell you as well, Brian, you know, interviewing is again, another totally different set of skills. It, it, oh, took, I'll bet. it took a long time for me to, to even get to where I am now. And I've still got a lot of work to do. That's How big. long have you been doing this? So I have been podcasting for three years. This show um, was rebranded from another show, which had like 120 episodes. And then this is the forty-first episode of this show. We've we've just recently joined Five by Five, though. I, I had a network called Seventy Decibels that I was running previously. Right on. So yeah, some time. So I want to talk to you about something else that you do, which is sort of around. Um, I've sort of classed it as like social hacking and engineering, and and, and you do some interesting things with um, charts and and releases of, of of things that you create. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, I just want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, which is, of course, the fine folks over at squarespace.com who give you absolutely everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace is a fully hosted, completely managed environment that allows you to create and maintain a beautiful website, blog, portfolio, or even site for your business. It doesn't matter how experienced you are with building websites. If you have an idea or something you want to launch, Squarespace gives you all of the tools you need to put something online in minutes. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, or integrating with other services like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even adding a store to your website. Squarespace have a system called Squarespace Commerce, which is a brand new, fantastic online system for allowing you to sell physical or digital goods and instantly start accepting payments. They've partnered with Stripe to allow you to do that. With Squarespace Commerce, you can sell anything. You can easily add a Squarespace uh, to any Squarespace site, new or existing. It integrates right in Squarespace Commerce, and it allows you to put a storefront on your website. You can sell physical, digital goods. You can manage your inventory, process all of your customer orders, and much, much more. It's an extremely powerful system, and you can find out all about that at the URL that I will give you in just a moment. But as well as all of this, with you still get all of Squarespace's excellent features if you do or you don't want to use commerce. It's an add-on feature if you want it. But Squarespace have beautiful themes that you can have for any site that you want to create. They're really clean. They let your content do all of the talking and they feature responsive web design. So it doesn't matter what uh, what size screen somebody is coming to view your site on. It's going to look fantastic no matter what. They have a system called Layout Engine, which is their page builder. It allows you to create custom layouts for each of your pages in seconds. It's a drag-and-drop system. It's very simple. You just add blocks of content such as photos, videos, text, and much more. And you can just drag them around the page very easily, all within the web browser. It's really something that I would love you to try out. Um, and I'm gonna, again, I'm going to give you, in a moment, a free trial. But as well as all of this, you get statistics, iOS and Android apps that let you manage your site and post to it on the go. They have 24-7 customer support and loads more. You can find out more and sign up for that free trial at squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. That's 70-D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S. Squarespace plans start at $10 a month for their standard plan and $20 a month for the unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year up front, you'll get 20% off. And if you sign up for two, you'll get 25% off. If you use the code 70 decibels 5 I'll spell it out for you, it's 70-D-E-C-I-B-E-L-S-5, you will get an additional 10% off your first order, and it will let them know that you found out about them through this show. So go check out Squarespace, everything you need to make an amazing website. Dude, you know I'm wearing a Squarespace t-shirt right now. 
I have a Squarespace sticker on my laptop. Squarespace are great, right? They're, they're an excellent supporter of the content that we make because I know they sponsor some of the stuff that you guys do as well. Absolutely. And it's legit gorgeous. I mean, I told the story on the air before. My daughter is nine years old and came home one day like, Dad, apparently, apparently pandas are endangered. So I want to make a website. And so she made panda-save.com. And if you look, it's super gorgeous. And you can't believe a nine-year-old made it completely on her own. I just set her up with a Squarespace trial account. And then she built it. And she's like, well, now is it going to go live? I was like, oh, all right, fine. So I started paying and I used our own promo code for it. Wow. But next time I'll use 70 decibels. I'm going to put this in the show notes. I cannot. This is a perfect example. And your nine-year-old made this website. That is insane. Yeah. It looks brilliant. <laughs> It doesn't it look amazing? <laughs> I've just gone to the blog. Pandas are sweet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite is when you click on what you could do, the only item is go to another site that accepts donations. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome, but it's a perfect example of what you can do with Squarespace. So, Brian, can you explain to me what the, the sorts of the things that you do um, when it comes to... The, what what I refer to as like hacking charts. Can you try and give an overview of that? You can probably explain it much better than I can. Yeah, well, sure. Okay, so there are, as a magician, there are certain things that you come to realize uh, about audience manipulation. For example, you notice that, hey, wow, it seems like every time there's less than 50 people at a show, nobody wants to volunteer. But whenever there's more than 50 people at a show, everyone wants to volunteer. And then you notice, well, hey, at the times where there's only 40 people at a show, if you force them, even against their will, to condense all together, they all clap and shout and, and, and react much louder than if they were all spread out. And a lot of magicians deal with uh, many psychological forces in a very intuitive way, sort of fumbling about kind of like uh, kind of like farmers in the old days. It's like they just knew that, you know, when the moon's of this, that you plant this and you aerate that and so on. But not a lot of science behind it uh, or depends on which magicians you talk to. But around the time we launched Scam School, I started really getting engaged in a lot of the psychology of social manipulation. In fact, Scam School was born of a book called uh, Origin of Brands by Alan Laura Reese, where they refer to branding in Darwinian terms. Just as Charles Darwin proposed this tree of life, they proposed a tree of brands. So you might have a branch that's automobiles, and then that splits off into a niche for speedy automobiles and and rugged automobiles. And then there's some that thrive and survive, you know, like the Ford Taurus, and there's others that die off from lack of interest, like uh, uh, the El Camino or whatever, because they get their niche squeezed out. And it's ever-changing in the mind of, of the audience. And so uh, one of their big lessons was find a niche that's unoccupied and fill it. And so Scam School was born of this idea of no. there's obviously a huge interest in magic tutorial videos, but there's not very many people uh, filling it. And the, the quality of program that was out there on YouTube, it was usually a pair of hands and some subtitles that were poorly written in bad English. And so you'll notice that Scam School, it's all in the field. It's high production value. We have a heavy focus on the social proof of people responding and laughing and the engagement. It's not really even about the tricks. It's about the good time everyone's having while they're doing it. Uh, and uh, these are all important from a sales perspective almost, but also in, in selling the legitimacy of your idea. So flash forward after Scam School launches, it's uh, 2008 in June, and I've been told that I'm going to open for Dignation. Now, Dignation is the flagship show of Revision 3 at the time. They have a hugely passionate uh, army of an audience, and uh, I'm going to go up and do 20 or 30 minutes beforehand, and I'm, I'm confident in my stage show. This is 10 years of doing it. I'm 
comfortable taking hostile audiences and get them on my side. But then it occurred to me that, wow, man, I'm going to have 600 of the most hyper-connected tech-savvy people in the entire country there giving me my, their full attention for you know 30 minutes. And so right before my finale, I did the first 20, 25 minutes, and then I sort of stopped. And I kind of gave a, a, a Steve Jobsian keynote in which I tried to rile everyone up saying, hey, man, what we're doing here is special. And you're a fan of Revision 3. That means that you're better than everyone else. You know, new media is going to crush old media behind, beneath its booth heels. But you know what? I noticed that looking at the top 10 podcasts, like eight, and at this point behind me, this whole slideshow comes up and it zooms in and you see that uh, of the top 10, like, uh, you know, number three is Oprah's Spirit Channel. NPR has four of the top 10 podcasts. You know, ABC News has another top podcast. And so I positioned it as new media versus old media. And I said, now, what if we pulled a scam? And of course, you know, I couched it as a, hey, man, let's stick it to the man mm-hmm. and let's figure out a way to pull a fast one on him. And I proposed that, uh, that at a specific date, for me to tweet out later, we would all press subscribe on Scam School at the exact same moment. And if we did this targeted strike, because as best we heard, the iTunes numbers are recalculated every four hours or so. It's still a closely guarded secret. But let's say it's recalculated every four hours. Well, obviously, if you get you know 3,000 people clicking subscribe at the exact same moment, it's going to freak out and say, like, well, this is clearly the number one best-selling podcast at the time. And the idea actually came from, man, this is how long ago it was, from Ron Paul's first presidential campaign. People realized that there's a difference between making $2 million over the course of your campaign and making $2 million in one day. Even though financially it means the same thing, making $2 million in one day was a huge publicity boost to his campaign. And so that's what I wanted to do, or at least that's what I proposed. Now, secretly, the only thing I wanted to do was figure out a way to hijack everyone to follow me on Twitter. I had no idea if this idea was going to work or not, <laughs> but I did know if I made the, I said, look, we'll come up with a plan later. Follow me right now on Twitter at Schwood. And of course the giant slide comes up behind me and these guys, all of them having cell phones on them at the time, they all, they all follow Schwood and many of them follow me to this very day, including some of them who uh, are, are not only my biggest fans, but some who, who I now consider some of my best friends were there in the audience at that show. Wow. And, uh, so I went back to the hotel room and I'm like, yeah, I got it. A thousand followers. Woo. And later that week, we decided that it would be on uh, 6, 6 at 6 p.m. We would launch the strike and I told everyone to do it. And sadly, like nothing happened. And I just looked and I was like, oh, I, I don't know if it worked or not. And they're like, ah, you know, boo, fail. So I took a nap. And then when I woke up, I discovered that Scam School was the number three and the number seven top podcast in the nation. It only got bought, got beat by uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and, um, no, I'm sorry, This American Life and uh, the Apple Keynote. And so, again, I'm thinking high five. Look, it actually worked. I can't believe it. And I thought the story was over. But what I didn't realize was the power of social proof. You know, uh, things like Yelp and Facebook uh, and anything, uh, Amazon ratings, uh, the McDonald's slogan of billions of billions served. We trust what other people say. And I forgot about the fact, or I never counted on the fact that once Scam School entered the top 10, then anybody who's experiencing podcasting for the first time, wandering into the storefront of iTunes, looking around, is going to see there's this thing called Scam School that has two of the top 10 slots. And so a week later, we'd only slipped to like five and 10 on that list. 
And so uh, that was the beginning of trying to understand why it is we respond to social pressures and social cues and cues of success. Uh, you know, read a whole bunch of books. You know, uh, a lot of the fundamentals are in Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, which is amazing. But it also began to shape my attitudes about creating this, this passionate fan base. And uh, the, as a result, the NSFW audience has from day one been a group that loves mischief. And that is partly by design. Because when we first started on the BB Live show, uh, as an experiment, I said something. I, I knew I wanted the type of passionate fan base that would try outrageous stuff. So offhandedly, in the middle of an interview, someone made a joke about some fake band or whatever. And I, I, I very intentionally said, well, you better watch out with this crowd. They'll have a Photoshop of the album art in the next 20 seconds. And sure enough, like five minutes later, somebody did. And then once it did, I made sure to show it and feature it and, you know, really blow up how great this guy was and how amazing it was to go fast. And pretty soon you had this culture of outdoing each other and, and, and wanting to start this mischief on the Internet. And I think that's a big part of what has built this, this passionate following so that now, even, even to this day, you know, and we, we don't call it a scam anymore. Now it's a matter of with this passionate audience, when we released our comedy album, Night Attack 2, uh, we said, okay, the target is iTunes. If you love the show and you love us, then you'll install iTunes, even if you hate iTunes. And uh, it's only $3.99, where this is not about the money. This is about trying to blow up the Death Star. And we ask everyone, you know, at noon on Saturday, when it releases, that's when to buy. And sure enough, like, uh, like, like, a like the demon hordes of the internet pulling off this amazing guerrilla warfare instantly strike at that one time we jump all the way to number 35 out of all albums on iTunes. We stay at the top of the comedy charts on iTunes for a full week. When we launched on, on Amazon, for all I know, a bunch of people bought the album twice, but they kept it up on Amazon as well. And then we got the call that Billboard told us that we had the number one best-selling comedy album in the United wow. States. And that was two weeks ago. And again, as if I've learned nothing, I shrugged my shoulders. I was like, that was awesome. We blew up the Death Star. Number one on Billboard. That's the best it'll ever get. And then I found out two days ago that we still have the number one best-selling wow. album on, on Billboard. So it's, again, like the power of social proof and the power of a passionate, engaged audience is, is absolutely remarkable to me. And I'm endlessly thankful for the people. It's To me, it is the most flattering com compliment that these people feel like, Whatever it is Justin and I have been doing over the last three years has provided enough value to them that they will install software they hate. In some cases, in other parts of the world, they stayed up until 3 a.m. for the right hour to press buy. Like that is that is that means the world to me that I would possibly engender that kind of commitment. It's incredible like that. It's just these these core fan base working together like you're like a team. It is. Well, and part of it is a core, deeply held belief I have that at any given time, my first thought in the morning is I owe them everything. They owe me nothing. And uh, if I, I live and die by the pleasure of those who I seek to entertain. Uh, and part of that grew out of in the college market, there was uh, you hear a lot of horror stories of entitled smug performers who come in and make these uh, student activities boards who work so hard to put on these shows, uh, they make them cry because these guys, they, you know, they're spoiled and they decide they deserve to be in a performing arts entertainment center. And then here they are in some community college performing in a cafeteria and they're bitter about it and they take it out on the kids. And I'm like, son of a bitch, look, 
you nobody in this crowd is going to compare you to a performing arts show. They're going to compare you to everyone else that they saw in this cafeteria. So your job is to be the best cafeteria performance son of a bitch they've ever seen. And your job is to make everybody – your job is to serve, not to be served. And I got so angry at these self-entitled jerks in, and I think I've held on to that, that, that I continue to believe deeply that it is my job to serve everyone who is in the audience. That's a real nice belief. And if you hold on to something like that, right, you're, you're set, I guess. Theoretically, it's getting tougher, though, just by the sheer numbers of things. Uh, my emails, especially, like uh, yeah. that's part of why I gravitate to Twitter now, because my time commitment, I can respond to just about everyone in 140 characters. But a lot of emails are coming in where people are asking nuanced questions that are going to take at least a paragraph or two to write. And when you get 300 of those a day, it just it, it, it gets real tough. And I, and I find myself writing a lot of apology letters to people as I send emails four weeks after the fact. So I, I think that a lot of this, like, you know, um, as you said, creating a passionate fan base is, is very, um, it lends, you know, so itself quite nicely to where the internet seems to be right now with Kickstarter and crowdfunding. And last week I had Jeff Kanata on the show and he mentioned that you hounded him to set up his Kickstarter project. Oh, yeah. No, he uh, I handed him thrice. I told him once I was like, hey, you should do a quick a Kickstarter. And he's like, yeah, maybe I'll do that. And I called a few weeks later. I'm like, uh, hey, seriously, you need to do a Kickstarter because Kickstarter's not going to be ever any more popular than it is right now. People, you know, nobody's been burned by Kickstarter. There's no bad publicity yet. The nostalgia for Totally Rad Show is at an all time high. You really need to do it. And, they, and I got him fired up. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then I called him again. I was like, have you done it? He's like, well, no, I started talking to this other guy. And he's like, well, do you know what it's going to be? Have you mapped this out? You can't do Kickstarter with a half-baked idea. And I'm like, the hell you can't. That's all you do on Kickstarter is half-baked ideas. <laughs> Nobody, think about it. Nobody gave Tim Schafer money knowing what the game was going to be. All they knew is that Tim Schafer was going to make another game. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what's going to be in Wasteland 2. All they know is that they're bringing back Wasteland. It's you buy on that good faith. And that's part of the reason that I expect sometime in the next year or two, there will be some backlashes, some nasty projects where people feel real ripped off. Uh, but we are in this kind of golden era right now. And I was so, so proud and thrilled to see Jeff go through with it. And I'm glad, I mean, you want to talk about somebody who lives to serve his audience and was rewarded for it. Jeff Kanata embodies what I aspire to be as, as an entertainer. He is an awesome, awesome fellow. Um, how important do you think crowdfunding is now in, in the modern media age? It seems like it's becoming more and more prolific. We've got Zach Braff, you know, putting his new movie on Kickstarter. Like, it seems like it's it's definitely permeating into the culture and, and just becoming like a thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about back to my first TV experience. Those days of top-down management, they're gone. They're Like, I watched as I do high-publicity gigs I watched when I did uh, Universal Orlando and the first year, uh, they were like, hey, you want me to promote this on Twitter? They're like, you don't, 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 we, we have promotions. We do every, don't want, you do your show. And then the second year, I'm like, hey man, I got scam school. Can I, can I do like some behind the scenes stuff? And they're all, they're all like, no, don't do, I mean, go ahead and tweet it out and talk about it. And you know, we want your fans to come, but, but we're real sensitive about behind the scenes stuff. And then, uh, and then finally, like four years later, uh, doing Halloween Horror Nights again, I'm like, hey, you guys want me to evolve stuff? They're like, yeah, man. If you could leverage your social presence and maybe do some like <laughs> behind the scenes featurettes or whatever, that would be fantastic. 
it's it's a changing world and everybody gets it. This the days of top down. This is what you will watch and you'll like it are over. And the days of I'm a movie star and I don't have to answer nothing. I'm too big and busy for you anyway. Those are over. Those you could get destroyed by rumors of being pompous or whatever. You, the, and I'm glad. Good riddance to those days. We are in the days now where where people entertainers understand that they owe things to their fans and they have to deliver on them. They can't just sit around and expect to be given these you know mega paychecks. That is exactly right, and I think that also lends back to what we're all trying to create, right, with podcasts. I mean, I feel like podcasting. You know, I, I talk about this a lot, and it might be because I'm in the industry. But I mean, especially maybe in the last 12 to 18 months, I feel like that we're in a kind of like a renaissance. Like there's so many new networks popping up, new shows and people that have, you know, been in traditional, not traditional, but have done it, been in different sort of mediums, even online, you know, guys who have blogs or, or you know, and, or gals who had like, I don't know, web TV shows or something. Sure. Are creating podcasts now, like they're, they're going to it and, and just sort of making new stuff. There was back in, oh man, 1995, 19, no, it had to be 98, uh, Michael Robertson of uh, mp3.com predicted the rise through mp3s of the middle class rock star. And, uh, I, you know, for good or for ill, I think we've seen a lot of that happen in the music world. But even better, you know, we're seeing the rise of the middle class movie star now or the middle class radio talk show host or although radio talk show hosts were probably already middle class. To begin with. <laughs> but 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 the idea that you can reach a global audience as things become increasingly more and more niche. Uh, you know, back in the 1950s, broadcast television was brand new, and it was dominated by the people who were there first, your ABC, CBS, NBC. Later on, you had Fox and the CW. In the 1970s, cable got deregulated, and so again, the people who dominated cable were the first movers, your TBS, your, your CNNs, your uh, HBOs. And the, the folks who were late to the party was NBC because they didn't see the point. They were like, why should we go do that? And then finally, after cable started to blow up, they're like, okay, fine, we'll do CNBC. It'll just be cable NBC. But instead, it was too late. They couldn't be NBC because that niche was already filled. So instead, it was only after they rebranded CNBC as the world's first financial business network that it actually th thrived and survived. And we're seeing the same thing on the internet uh, in this world with no rules. It's not your HBOs that are dominating early on. It's not your your NBCs or any of those. It's it's your it's your Onion News networks. It's your Twits. It's your Revision Threes. It's your Five by Fives that are that are dominating this space because they are they have that that early mover advantage. And you know, I constantly feel that it's about niche content is so important because there is nowhere else you know on the internet that you would. And so there's nowhere else in the world except podcasting and on the internet where you can, for, you, you can have someone create something that's about a very, very niche product, even things like just talking about Apple news, you know, where it's becoming more, you know, more yes. mainstream now, not to the level that it's spoken about on like a show like Mac Break Weekly or Amplified or something like that. It's, it's really cool. And, and I think that's what makes it, what makes this such a great medium is that you can create a show about anything and some people will listen because they will share the same things that you do. Well, I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's still the wild west and we are it is still highly volatile, you know. It's it's tough to want to invest your own time, effort and money into the business mm -hmm. not knowing what it's going to get, but if you're in a position where what you really want is the flight time, there's never been a better time to dive in because there's nobody to tell you no. That's exactly it. I mean, even the iTunes review is nothing really. They don't really. I don't think they actually check anything. 
Yeah. Well, hold on. You speak like you're talking about a specific circumstance. Is there a review that's got you pissed off? No. <laughs> like, yeah, you hear that, Larry? Yeah, I'm on to Larry you, guy. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, unlike app review or whatever, we don't, you know, podcasting, you don't even have to go through that. You just submit it and they let it through. I yeah. think, I think that's all it is. Oh, you're talking about review to, to get it approved. You're talking about approval. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah. Ah. Like, I thought you were smarting over some bad iTunes reviews that you got. No, I try and stay away from reading those. <laughs> anyway, Brian, it's been awesome to have you. It's, it's Thank been you a so pleasure. much, man. Sorry, I just ran my mouth off the whole time. It's, what, it's an interview show. This is what I, I want to, I want to hear you. The listeners want to hear you. That's why we have you here. Tell, tell people where they can, where can they find Schwood? Uh, best thing to do if you're doing any of the social media things, it's facebook.com slash schwood. That's S-H-W-O-O-D. Twitter.com slash schwood, S-H-W-O-O-D. And google.com slash plus schwood. Uh, those are the best ways to find out about stuff. Uh, you can all, I mean, my website's also schwood.com. It's horribly outdated and I needed it upgraded, even though it's, it is a Squarespace website, though. But That's it's Squarespace awesome. 5, not 6. They're all good. I, I use both. Uh, just very quickly before we wrap up today... Um, Many of you, many of our listeners will have been following uh, me from the days of 70 decibels. It has only been a couple of weeks after all. Um, and there was something that I'd always threatened to do, which is have a 70 decibels T-shirt. Well, I have now made one, and there is one for sale, and it's in the show notes. But you can go to teespring.com forward slash 70 decibels, and you will find a T-shirt there. It's the 70 decibels memorial T-shirt. Uh, as the network is going to be shutting its doors soon. That, that day is getting closer and closer as we bring more and more shows over. Um, Bionic is now on the network at 5x5.tv forward slash Bionic. But you can go on. The, the shirt has already met its funding goals, so if you want to buy one, you will definitely get one. Um, I know that everybody on in, on the internet is making T-shirts right now, but it's because I think we all want them for if we are going to or to help anybody if they're going to WWDC. So I would go on and get one. It's in the show notes at 5x5.tv forward slash cmdspace, so command space, uh, slash 41. You'll find it there. Also, you'll find a link in the show notes to my good buddy, Mr. Stephen Hackett. He has a great shirt too for his site, 512 Pixels, and I urge you to take a look at that. Um, I think any Mac nerds will love that shirt. So there's two awesome T-shirts for you to buy if you're going to WWDC or if you just want to be the coolest kid on the block. Um, I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, on Twitter and app.net and all the social places. And next week, we're going to be joined on Command Space by 5x5's own Mr. Moises Chuyon. So thank you very much, Mr. Brian Brushwood, for being here. It's been a pleasure. You got it. Thanks so much for having me. I have to have you back on again sometime. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. And I'll be back next week. And there may actually also be a bonus episode of the show before my episode with Moises. So look out for that. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.